So this is going to be a Q&A. I'm going to take your guys' questions. Use a Sunday night group. And you can ask any question you want, although I want permission to tell you that I don't know the answer. And, but I will, it doesn't mean I won't take a stab at it. But, but my philosophy right is this. is Look, I, I, like every other human on earth, do not know the answer to every question. <laughs> but I will try my best to try to point us in a biblical direction whenever possible using whatever skill set I've got. So I'll do that. But that being said, you can ask any question you like. I'm not putting any topic off limits for this. Um, and you can even disagree with me, as you know. That doesn't bother me at all. I think it's a very interesting conversation, actually. So please, go ahead. Okay, so in Hebrews 13.8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and today. Today and forever. Um, and Jesus is God, correct? Um, therefore, God, therefore, then, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow as well. Um, does this mean that God still condones wars and death for righteousness' sake? Does he create leaders who will massacre thousands of people in order to do his will and carry out his plan? Okay. Um, the, the question, as I understand it, is like relating this concept of Jesus being the same to then saying, if God condoned things in the Old Testament, then he would condone things in the New Testament that are similar. Um, and I sort of want to say yes to that. As much as this might sound like a hot-button thing to say, I kind of, if I had to give a yes or no answer to what you just said, I would say yes. But, now let me, let me unpack it. Could you, could you read for us again, what was the list of things that you said, does God condone? And you gave us actually a list. Does God still condone wars and death for righteousness' sake? For righteousness' sake, and does he create leaders who will end up like massacring people in order to do his will? So I see those. Let's just separate those. Those are two different issues, right? So condoning wars or even death, the killing of someone for righteousness' sake, actually, I can answer that with a, with a definite yes. I mean, um, Jesus is going to come back and make war upon his enemies and kill and slay them, and it will be righteous and good when he does it. So that's like pretty simple. Now, someone may have a moral problem with that. I think that they're confused, and that's, I'll, consider, I'll treat that as a separate question, but it's just pretty clear yes to me. On the other side, does he create people who do evil, unrighteous killing? That's like a separate issue, right? Because these, these people aren't people where God's like, go out and kill righteously, oh, Hitler. Like, that's an, obviously not the case. That's a separate issue entirely. There's a time where he's, he, he comes back and he makes war with his enemies, and there's also times in the Old Testament where God condones violence to be used as judgment against certain groups of people, both Israel as well as people who are not, not Israel, the nations around. So God does do that. But does that mean every violent act is morally good? No, certainly not. So in that case, I'd say, does, does God make people who do, and fill in the blank, X, evil, evil act? Yes, he makes those people. He created the world in which they live, but they're the ones who did it in violation of his will. Um, he did not want them to do that. He commanded them not to. He put a conscience in them to tell them not to. He even, he even endorsed human governments to help restrain people from doing those types of things. So we're several steps removed from God like making people so that they will do evil deeds. Um, so what the Bible seems to indicate is through God commanding us not to do those things, putting a conscience in it, conscious in us to not do that stuff, conscience. And, and also, through him supporting governments, we read about in Gen after the flood and in Genesis, we read about how God sort of endorses, if a man sheds blood, by man his blood will be shed. This is like the endorsement of capital punishment. Well, that's a hot button issue right now. The Catholic Pope, I guess, just came against capital punishment recently. I hope you guys heard about that. I sh he's the Pope. I'm not sure if he's Catholic. That's a different issue. <laughs> um, that's a whole other thing. It's really kind of crazy times we're living in. But um, but there's all these sort of safeguards and proofs that God's given us that he is not okay with these sort of things. Like, for instance, will God or will he not judge the, the person who murders and punish them? And he'll punish them with something like what they did, some equivalent thing. See, killing's not always wrong. It's just wrong when it's wrong killing. <laughs> it's right when it's right killing. It's like in marriage, you have the marriage bed, which is good, and outside of marriage, it's evil. But it's not necessarily this act is always good or always wrong. Killing's generally wrong. But there's times where it's the right thing to do. And when, when somebody stops a, uh, a mass murderer by putting a bullet in his head, I'm like, thank you. 
You know, I'm thankful that they stopped that guy. Don't care at all that he died because of what he was doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I have a follow-up then. There was a video that I saw of a man who was um, a prisoner, and they put um, another man in his jail cell that was um, a pedophile, and it was a really horrible case. And the man kept trying to justify um, his pedophilia, and the man ended up killing him. Mm -hmm. Um, And a bunch of people were like, oh, who are you to judge, blah, blah, blah. The prisoner said, no, I'm not the judge. Only God is the judge. I just set up the appointment. Like, when that, when I heard wow. that, and I was kind of like, yeah. awesome. But at the same time, I was like, well, you're also in prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. So there's a sense in which if he was a true, if he was a pedophile, he'd done all these horrible pedophile things. There's a sense in which, which I would say he deserved to die. Okay, that, that's my view. Okay, this is basically rape on a child, and I think he did deserve to die. Morally, he deserved to die. But the issue is, did that prisoner have the right to kill him? And that's where you go, well, no. I mean, you, you, you have no authority to carry out the punishment of the law. What if that guy's out of prison and he just goes around punishing whoever he thinks deserves it? That guy's driving recklessly. I'm going to go stab the tires in his car. Someone's got to do it. Like, that's chaos. And, and, uh, and so I, I think that what, he's, what he did was he... He's a murderer. <laughs> he murdered somebody, and then he fell back on how bad that other guy was, to like just. But if but based upon his reasoning, the pedophile would have been equally justified in killing him. He's a murderer, <laughs> so that that's why there's government set up. So biblically, this this kind of what I'm trying to unpack is I think supported in scripture because it talks about how like um, in Jude it's like you know Michael the archangel when when. Uh, uh, disputing over the body of Moses says to Satan, like, the Lord rebuke you. Now, he has the power to do it. We know that later on, Michael's in Revelation, he has war, and he overcomes. Michael Archangel, he overcomes Satan, and he can kick his butt, basically, so to speak, but he doesn't do it because it's not the proper time. He doesn't have the authority to carry it out. So there's this sense in which you, you don't have, you're not the government. Like, I don't have a badge that says, like, you know, Bellflower Police Department. We don't have our own police department, but, but I, don't, I don't have that badge, right? I don't, I don't have the ability to do these things. And, and so here's, here's the thing where the guy got, he got what he deserved, but in a way that was inappropriate because uh, there was no justice. So in, in the, this is a good point, too. In the Old Testament law, right, you're like, but weren't they supposed to stone like certain people? that You got the death penalty, they'd stone you. But people imagine this as though there is, as though the Israelites were just like, Whoa, whoa, did you see what that guy did? And they just start throwing stones at him. But actually, they had a full court system where they required eyewitnesses, multiple eyewitnesses, and they had to convict the person of the crime before the sentence was carried out. Do you see how it's not enough? Well, they're wrong, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come after them. That's like, that's, this is actually rebellion against the government for me to just be a vigilante, vigilante justice sort of thing. So it's like, as much as I like the Batman you know, concept, technically... That's wrong. <laughs> yeah. Does that answer that question for you? It does, but then I'm wondering, God knew that he was going to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, was that not God's will to put him in that cell with that man who he knew was going to kill him? Um, n- no. If, if what you mean by, was that not God's will, then what you're sort of saying is, if God knows something will happen, he must want it to happen exactly like that. That's what you're sort of assuming, right? If God knows it'll happen, he must want it to happen. He knew that Satan was going to tempt Eve. He must have wanted Satan to tempt Eve. And now I'm sort of making God the author of all things, including evil. Now, does the Bible do that? The Bible actually specifically says about the Israelites when they offered their children to Molech, like burning on the arms of this false idol, they kill their children in the name of this false god. He says, I never commanded you to do that. It never entered my heart. So God did not desire for them to do that. He allows people to make decisions. He works it together according to his will. But it's kind of more like um, this masterful ability of God's to see all the things that everyone's going to do and plan accordingly. That's, I think, how scripture... So Joseph's another story of this, right? Joseph is sold into slavery from his brothers, This is planned out by God in a sense, and it's disliked 
by God in another sense at the same time. So Joseph, after he rises to the right hand of Pharaoh and he's now saving his family, he says to his brothers, what you, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. So it's speaking of God's intention in the final results of all things, but not God's intention for them to sell their brother to slavery. Do you see how the Bible separates the evil part from God's ultimate will, which is what's accomplished over the course of time? And we look at the moment and say, oh, I would say the moment of that murder, not God's will. He's clear about that. Don't do this. That's obviously not his will. He says, don't do it. But then over the course of hundreds and thousands of years, we're going to be getting the ultimate will of God in allowing free will, but still accomplishing his purposes. So yeah, like uh, Judas had to betray Jesus. But did he really? No, of course he had a choice. But it was going to happen one way or another. So God uses his free will, but then... He's still accountable for it. So, personally, I know I know some people really struggle with this issue, and people can ask questions about it for sure. It doesn't intellectually. I see no problem here. <laughs> I see no actual intellectual problem here. I do see that it can be a challenging concept, and because of that, it can disturb people. But I, I just, I don't see it. And I think the Bible's pretty clear. He's like, don't do this, but I'm going to use whatever you do, because I'm that good. <laughs> I can. I can, organize, I can organize reality in such a way to accomplish my purposes. Yeah. My, my analogy is this, this old TV show called Kung Fu. Uh, David Carradine was the actor in it. Have you ever watched that show? I watched it when I was a kid, like a Nick at Night or something. I don't know. And, <clears throat> and in, this, in the show, if, as I recall, he wouldn't really ever attack anybody. But if they did attack him, he would you know, use their body momentum and throw them. And they would always do these really cheesy slow motion throws over the rail of like some... some you know, balcony or something. And whatever they did to attack him, he didn't want it, he didn't cause it, but he was going to use it against them. And this, in a sense, I, w- I would just say, in a crude way, God's kung fu is very good. <laughs> <laughs> whatever you do, he will use this. But, but don't think that he wanted you to do that, or that, but rather, he's like, I know what you're doing, and I know how to use that even against you. Uh, so that, I mean, I see that as... His, his genius and wisdom. Yeah. So there's my cheesy kung fu analogy. <laughs> so I have two questions. Well, okay. actually I have a few. But my first question is, are you back up and streaming now? So this Tuesday I will have my first live stream in like three months because I've been taken out. So yeah, I'm going to start streaming on Tuesday. Um, so I do have a couple questions. And I think it's more of a, a curiosity. I don't know if there's really like an answer to it. Yeah. But one of them is, so in Judges, Deborah, the lady judge, is she married to Barack? Are they husband oh. and wife? It kind of makes it seem like they're more than just friends. Mm-hmm. Where, do you, where do you get that impression? Do you know what verse? Just like when they go to war. Or she goes to battle with him. Mm-hmm. She actually goes with him. I mean, not down to actually battle, but... Mm-hmm. Oh, because he says, I won't do it unless you come. Yeah. It, it just seems like there's yeah. a deeper connection than just... So if she was married to him, it wouldn't be a question, would it? He's like, she'll just come she... with him. Like, oh, we're traveling. Come on, let's go. But he, he tells her, I, will, I won't do it unless you come with me. Basically, he's being scared. <laughs> and I mean, he is. And then she is, in a sense, she's a leader... And she's a judge of Israel, and it's a female who's a judge of Israel. The implication is that some of the men are not stepping up, and Barak symbolizes that in a sense, I think. And that's why after the battle, when he finally shows up and he does all this stuff, the battle's delivered delivered into who? JL. She's the one with the, the tent peg that brings it down into, uh, what, Sisera? Is that his name? His, his, his head drives it in, into the ground, kills him. And the, the main thrust of her song, the song of Deborah, then at the end... Mm-hmm. She goes, when leaders lead in Israel, praise the Lord. And she's like, oh, oh, and when the people willingly offer themselves. Her song is like, here's Deborah. She's living in a place where she's starving, or I should say Israel is starving for the people to step up and serve God. And so she's doing her job in the absence of the male leadership that should be there. And she's like, come on, Barack. Oh, I won't do it unless you go. So then, okay, fine, but you're going to be shamed because you know what? The, the, the victory is going to be put into the hands of a woman. 
instead of into your hands. And, um, and so it's the abandonment of the male's leadership roles that I think is happening in that, in that section in the book of Judges. And then at the, at the end, her song is talking about how great it is when people actually step up and lead. And I've seen this too in my own life. I've seen it where um, when guys won't step up, oftentimes the girls will be like, well, if you won't, then I will. Like someone's got to do it. And I've seen that. And then, and then how much even those girls doing that are like happy when a guy finally steps up and is spiritually manning up, not like egotistical male pride man up. But you know what I mean? Spiritually saying, you know, I have a calling and I'm going to step into it. So, yeah, those are some of the things I see there. But I don't think there's any reason to think they're married. So, question. She evidently was married. Um, Deborah chapter, I'm sorry, Judges 4, 4. It says, now Deborah, a prophetist, the wife of... There we go, Lapidoth. Now, I thought I read somewhere that that name translates into Barak. That Lapidoth translates into Barak? That seems a little strange to me. Let me let me bring up for you because I can do this because I have software. <laughs> <laughs> um, here is the Hebrew. So Deborah, the pro- a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, and there it is. It's just Lapidoth in the. Either it translates or his name changed. I read, and, and that part was not in the Bible. Yeah, that. That sounds made up to me. <laughs> it sounds made up. People will make up all kinds of stuff about the Bible, and you as a, as a Bible student, you can have the courage to say, okay, I read it, it wasn't there, and just ignore what they said. Because they'll make up stuff like, well, you don't know about Adam's first wife, Lilith. <laughs> have you guys had this? I've had people say, I don't know about Adam's first wife, Lilith, because she didn't exist, right? His first wife was Eve, like that's how it happened. There's people will just say crazy stuff about the Bible, and then they throw it at you, and they'll and you'll be like, well, can you show me how that's true? And that's the thing. When someone makes a wild claim, it's nice and simple to say, can you show me that? Like, where is that in the Bible? Um, but, but now, perhaps there's something I've got wrong here. But let me let's read it. Verse five of Judges four. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, and so she had to send and summon this guy. He's not even he's not living with her, he's not near her, he's living in a whole different area, and she has to bring him over um, and ask him to get to work. So if Barak is the same as her husband, why is her husband introduced as Lapidoth? But then and why then, would she be leaving to go with him to battle if she was married? Oh, she didn't go with him as a companion. She went with him as the judge of Israel. So previous judges of Israel, think of these guys, right? Samson. Right? Like, I want you to come with me, right? If you have, you have like God's anointing on you and God's power somehow with you, you come with me and then I'll go. Right? Gideon, he was a judge of Israel. These are, these are deliverers. Ehud, right? The guy that, that whole thing with Eglon and the... <laughs> so... <laughs> So when you read about the judges of Israel, they're often military victors over the in- enemies of Israel. And so he's like, come with me, come with me. Yeah, so he, it was, he was scared. And he wanted, right. yeah. And then my second question is David and, and Jonathan. What, oh, yeah. what kind of, can you explain that kind of like brotherly love that they had for each other? That yeah. do, doesn't sound like at least I haven't read it anywhere else in the Bible. Maybe yet. someone could find us. There's a pa, there's the passage where it really talks about that in detail, and we can read it together. For Samuel 18, I think it's in chapter 18 somewhere. Okay, so we're going to read through this, and now keep this in mind that especially nowadays with like the pro-gay activists mm-hmm. that are going on, there are those who've said that basically they reread the Bible and they go, let me try to find characters in the Bible who were homosexuals because I want to find support for homosexuality in the Bible. Now let me just say off the cuff, if you care about what the Bible says about homosexuality, you need to look not for the people, but for the commands. Like there's specific commands in scripture repeatedly and consistently that say that homosexuality is a sin in the eyes of God, that it is wrong, and it, it's just wrong. The, and, and we're talking about the physical act. This is wrong, and God judges people for this. It's 100% clear in the Bible. The gymnastics people have to go through 
to try to get around those passages are embarrassing and they're, and they're very much um, <laughs> filled with lies, just utter deceit and lies. So I have a whole four-part series online called Homosexuality, uh, Speaking the Truth in Love, and I, the first study is all about the Old Testament passages. The second study is all about the New Testament passages. And I deal with the whole pro-gay theology stuff, which it turns out is just a terrible net being laid out to trap people who might fall into it. It, it ends up being that this pro-gay theology is utterly fallacious, utterly fallacious and false. And it's just trying to get people to sin. It's like the, when Jesus said, you know, you, you have this woman who's teaching people, teaching my people to commit sexual immorality. That's the pro-gay theology, teaching people to sin. Very dangerous. But there's also another thing where we just, let's ignore what Romans says. Let's ignore what Leviticus says. Let's just ignore 1 Corinthians. Let's ignore all the biblical passages. Let's ignore what Jesus said about marriage. And let's just find people in the Bible who we think were gay. As if that would support it. Okay, that being said, this is, this is probably the most popular one I've heard, is David and Jonathan. So we'll read it. First <clears throat> uh, Samuel 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. So then, <clears throat> this is David. He's, he's now going to stay in Saul's uh, palace. And him and Jonathan are like blood brothers, kind of, right? They're like super duper close. But the terminology is interesting. Their soul was knit together. He loved him as his own soul. Um, so now we, we, you could say, well, husbands are called to love their wives as themselves. Like, well, love your wife as yourself, right? Well, Jesus loves the church. In, the, in fact, he's the model of how a husband should love his wife. But then Jesus didn't have a, forgive the crudeness here, there was no sexual relationship with the church. It's almost blasphemous to try to draw that connection. If that kind of love assumes something physical, then that doesn't connect with what Jesus said. Forgive me, this, this is, it's not my fault that we're talking about something so morally wrong. <laughs> but I have to use words to, to get to the heart of the issue. So, uh, verse 2, and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. It goes on, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now later, Jonathan says to David, I know that you're going to be the next king of Israel. It was already anointed. Jonathan knew it. He knew David was to be the next king. When he gives him his armor and his sword and his robe, he's like saying, even me, the son of Saul, who's supposed to be the next king, I know you're going to be the next king. That's what's really happening here. There's nothing inappropriate going on about him taking his robe off. And to read that into it is to be perverted in your mind and force that onto the text of Scripture. As it goes on, and David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now, there's another passage where after um, Jonathan dies... Trying to, I don't remember off the top of my head where it is. After Jonathan dies, David's lamenting Jonathan. And that's the sister passage to the one we just read. And he says to him that, his, that Jonathan's love was like sweeter than the love of woman, women, or something along those lines. Uh, maybe someone could find where that is, because I will take us there. Somewhere in 2 Samuel. There it is. Okay, 2 Samuel uh, 1, 25 and 26 here. It says, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. David's lamenting. I'm distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. So, this is the passage. And they say, well, obviously, David and Jonathan had a secret love affair going on. Now, first off, let me say this. If the Bible was going to expose some embarrassing thing in David's life, do you think it would have a problem with this? Have you read the Bible? <laughs> like, like, David slept with Bathsheba, and then he gets busted, and God judges because of it, and all this crazy stuff happens. The Bible just puts it right out there in the open, right? So if this is somehow there, it's super-duper hidden, and it's like, oh, just for, just for pro-gay groups to find in the 21st century, this is the nature of how cults twist the Bible to fit their teachings, that's how people are approaching the text here. It's really embarrassing, in my opinion. Now, let's look for clues. Is there anything here about a physical, sexual relationship? Well, it says, I'm distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. My brother, not my companion, not my lover. 
my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women, not replacing the love of women, not equal and of the same nature as the love of women. David's like, you were closer to me. You're my brother. You were so close to me. The loyalty that we had to one another surpassed that of women. And if you don't forget this, his own wife went behind his back and tried to trick him and that sort of thing. So remember, remember Michael? Saul's like, I'm going to give him Michael because she'll be like a, like a curse to him. <laughs> so, so he marries her, and, and Saul knew that she was, she was that daughter. <laughs> so, so basically, when you read it, and you assume that two men who love each other are supposed to be physically intimate, you have the problem. But if you recognize that you can love somebody without being physically intimate with them, then you realize that you've, you're not a pervert, okay? And I, I'm using that word thoughtfully here. I'm not trying to accuse somebody. I'm just saying literally, you have to have like sex-colored glasses to read this stuff in the Bible. You can't be reading the Bible plainly. We are called to love. How, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity, the psalm says. Is that sexual? Not in, not in any way, shape, or form. We're called to love each other. The, the, the core thing in Christianity is to love one another, right? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, mind and strength, and love your brother as your self. Like, I'm supposed to have this incredible love for each other. Is there anything sexual about that? No. Marriage is the only context in which that is appropriate and wonderful and celebrated. And outside of that, it's sinful. So this is one of those examples. So this has led modern, pro, the more modern, more cutting-edge pro-gay the, you know, theologians that are trying to promote this content, it's led them to move away from this stuff. They don't say Jonathan and David anymore. They just go, like, don't go there anymore because they realize that once someone actually looks at the text, they realize like, they actually get offended. And they go, you're, you're just pushing your perversion onto the text of Scripture. And that... Um, God will deal with you for that. Like you're, you're, you're teaching God's people to sin and to embrace wickedness, and um, and don't be like, well, why do you why are you even talking? Why are you bringing this up? Like we didn't bring it up, you did. Like <laughs> you're the one forcing the Christians to have to talk about this issue all the time, because we're perfectly happy to move on, onto other issues because there's plenty to talk about. So um, so anyways, I I hope that that helps. Yeah, the short answer is they had a, a beautiful brotherly love relationship. And that doesn't imply anything physical. And there's nothing in the text to imply it is. The comparison with women is, when you think about David's history with his, with, with his wife, and you're like, okay, you had a, you supported me even when she didn't, is the idea. You know, even when David was running away, Jonathan's like, David, I know that you're going to be the king one day. And God's anointed you. I'm with you, brother. As his dad's trying to kill him. So they had a really awesome relationship. Yeah. Okay, my question is... Uh, can you define gossip? Ooh, gossip. Define gossip. Hmm. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I, I'm gonna ask you guys for this. Like if if I go uh, if I go out for prayer, and mm-hmm. and you know at the altar after after church, and I and I you know receive prayer and I tell them what I need prayer for, is it gossip for them to go and tell another elder or another person? What I ask for prayer? Um, well, any, I mean, yeah. <laughs> in my opinion, it is because I, I, if someone asks me for prayer, it's always private, um, unless it's in public. You know, they're asking in public. But if someone comes up, I, I, personally, I've I've never had a problem with that. When people who who have to like tell everybody what they know, um, I just don't tell them stuff. Um, I don't. I'm not even tempted. When you guys come and tell me something secret about you, it, it dies with me. I don't tell my wife. I don't tell anybody. There's nobody's business. Um, so yeah, I think that that's gossip. There's actually laws about that too. If you go to somebody uh, in our country, if you go to someone, a pastor, and you share with him something that's going on in your life, um, and it's pastoral counseling, it's private. He's not supposed to tell anybody. They could bring him before a court, and he's not supposed to tell anybody, unless really special circumstances. You know, like you threatened, I'm, I'm going to go blow up this building in five minutes. Like now, he's supposed to say something. So here's the here's the Greek word for gossip. Um, so I know it says like flyeroi there, but it's actually flu. That's a upsilon there. So fluoroi or fluoros means gossipy. One who talks nonsense. Let's look at what the Launida says about this. 
This is just the Greek word for gossip. I'm just curious because it's the word they actually put in the text when they were talking about gossiping. So pertaining to talking nonsense, one who talks nonsense, gossipy. They talk nonsense and are busybodies. That's 1 Timothy 5.13. It's possible that in 1 Timothy 5.13, fluoros should be rendered as gossipy in view of the fact that one who speaks nonsense about someone else is normally gossiping. That's interesting because that, normally that's not what we think of when we say gossip. We think of um, informa private information about someone that just doesn't need to be shared. I tend to think of that. But this is actually nonsense or the thing you're sharing isn't even really true or accurate. Um, yeah. I guess that happens as well. You ever hear stories about yourself and you're like, really, I did that? I didn't even know that. That's news to me, you know. I've heard, I think we all have been there. Um, the simple rule in life, though, is, right, if someone gossips to you, they gossip about you. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. But I'm like, people don't come to me with that stuff, generally speaking. I'm usually the last one to find out. And I take that as a compliment. Yeah. Oh, you mean you all in your whole circle, you were all talking about all this and building all this big thing. And then I find out, like, two years later. And I'm like, okay, well, yeah, at least I got to be, you know, unaware. <laughs> the, blessing of, the blessing of not even knowing what you were dealing with. So yeah, um, yeah. I just like to go on. Need to know. Does a person need to know? Is there any reason why I want them to know? Yeah, I'm not sure of a better way to describe it. So another question is. Uh, so if I go, for, like, let's say, if I went for prayer and I told them uh, certain things, but I left out the like the whole like 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 all the details. Do I need to tell the details? Um, I forget the verse where it says, confess your trespasses to, to one another so you may be healed. Yeah. Um, does that fall in line with like confessing your trespasses? Like, like do I have to give full details of the, con of the trespass? Okay. Yeah. Or, I mean, yeah. Or so my question not. on that passage as I read it, right, confess your trespasses to one another is <clears throat> which ones and, and which one another's. So which trespasses and which people do I, am I supposed to, because it's pretty vague in that passage. So one thing's clear is um, if, if I sin against you, I am supposed to go to you to talk to you about it. So I trespassed against you. So what, what I live by is this, the two things, well, maybe three. If I, can, if, if I trespass against a person, I should go to them. That's like Matthew. If, if, you're, if you're there with your gift at the altar and you realize your brother has something against you, meaning you've trespassed against him, like not I've got something against him, but he has something against me. Like, I've, I've offended, I've wounded, I've done something wrong. I should go and confess to my brother and then come and bring my gift and offer it. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. So, so I say if you trespassed against a person, confess to that person. Um, a company, deal with, with the company. Uh, you, you know, whatever it is, deal with that trespass. Then there's the issue of trespassing against God. Well, every trespass and sins against God. So in addition to going to a person, I'm going to go to God and deal with him and bring any sin or any issue that's, that's come up and openly deal with that before God um, right away. And then the, the third one is, if you're having sin issues that you're like, I am struggling, and I, you know what I mean? Like, I'm struggling and I need help. And there's another situation where you might go to a person and bring them in on it, so to speak. But let's suppose that I, like, really hated somebody and I was hateful in my heart towards them. And I just found everything they did irritating. And I think, well, I'm supposed to confess my trespasses. So I go to them and I say, I'm just so sorry. I've hated you so much. I found everything you do irritating. I, hated, I hate the way you talk. I hate the things you say. I hate, I hate your ideas. I hate the way you look. Um, and I just want to confess, I'm really sorry. Man, I feel so much better. Thank you. Right? Like, all I've done is wound that person. And that is not a loving act. Like, as, as though for my own personal therapy, I came to just vent on them. So, but if, but let's say I said bad things to them or hurt them or wounded them, then I'm going to go to them and tell them. But it's kind of like, why would I bring you into it when you were never in it in the first place? Um, I may just wound or hurt you. So those are some of the things I think about, for what it's worth. Yvonne's got her hand up. Oh, here we go. Go ahead, yeah. So I know when Satan was cast out of heaven. He took a third of the angels with him. Can you tell me the difference between a fallen angel and a demon and a spirit, like the spirit that entered Saul? Now, did the fallen angel 
take the form of a spirit or a demon, or were those already created beforehand? Yeah. Okay. Um, here's where I have more questions than answers. And let me tell you what, here's something I've been doing Sunday nights. And I've been doing this sort of on my own privately for a while, but I started actually doing it on Sundays with you guys without telling you. Or maybe I've mentioned it, I don't know. Was this, is like, let's say you take everything that you've been taught as a Christian, and then you say, how much of this do I really know from the Bible versus how much of this might even just be traditions that we've added on? Doesn't mean they're bad, I just wanna know the difference. And so what I've been doing over the course of years, actually, and, and now recently with you guys, is <laughs> um, rebuilding my own theology from the text. So this is, this is causing my own, this is why, like, when I did that study on alcohol, I was able to give a teaching that was based on just the teaching of, just this is what the scripture says. Let me take, I was maybe raised amongst, like, an abstinence-type group, and then, um, and then I'm, like, found that I was forcing that view on the text, and that was me, not the Bible. So I taught on it. So, when it comes to angels and demons, here's an area where I go, how much of what I know comes from the Bible, and how much of what I know is just floating around our Christian environment? And I'm not clear on this yet. So, is an angel and a, are, are fallen angels the same as demons? Good question, I don't know. Here's, let me, now I said I have more questions than answers, so I'm gonna make it worse. Has Satan already taken a third of the angels with him? Or is that fall in Revelation, is that future? Because as far as I can tell, that's future. Because then Michael made war with the devil and his angels. And he swept a third of the stars out of the sky. And I think it's future tense. Whereas in past tense, Michael's not fighting Satan. He goes, the Lord rebuke you. And then all of a sudden, he, and in Job, Satan comes before God. Is he cast out yet? Hmm. And now I've made it worse. <laughs> um, in Ephesians, there's this phrase, there's, he talks about, and it talks about in Colossians as well, both those books. They're kind of parallel books in a sense, but um, principalities, powers, and the rulers of the darkness of this age. What are those? What is a principality? How is that different than a power? These, are, these seem to be spiritual beings. Okay, now I'm going to make it worse. <laughs> When we read about angels in the Bible, we don't read about one specific type of angel and that's it, right? Go to Ezekiel and look at the description of these different creatures in heaven. And you're like, what is this? Is it possible that, that humans, we all look just pretty similar, right? But is it possible that angels have quite a lot of variety? So I can make it worse. The word angel means messenger and is applied both to angelic beings, what we usually think of, but it also is applied to people. Humans, it's a messenger, it's an angelos, it's just a messenger going out to do a thing. And so then I go, okay, well, what words do we have that specifically describe these spiritual beings? And we have like cherub, seraph. Okay, well, what exactly does that mean? So this is a branch of theology called angelology. And then when you get to specifically, it's called demonology. I know it sounds creepy, but it's just describing the type of things you're studying. And one of these days, this is not high on my priority list because there's some, I want to do the Trinity and I want to do all these things first. Um, one of these days, I want to dig, dig deep into that and then come with just a bunch of scriptures and try to get more nitty-gritty because I have more questions than answers on those issues. Yeah. And because of Sunday nights, how we were talking about how Jesus being an angel of the Lord yeah. in the Old Testament, mm -hmm. that kind of got my mind going of are demons or evil spirits a form of Satan as well mm -hmm. or a form of another angel, of a fallen angel. Yeah. That's where that kind of... Yeah, and some people think demons are different than these fallen angels. The thing is, I, I realize in my head, here's an area where in my head, it's still a muddly mess of not only what I've read in the text of scripture, but what I've heard from a bunch of people. And I go, until I can clear out the, the, the mess, I don't want to speak on it because I don't know where I've absorbed something that may or may not be biblical. So... Um, so yeah, this excites me, and I'm interested in doing it. And I'm, I, I love that one day, years down the road, my YouTube channel is going to be full, and my online ministry is going to be full of content that's just all, as best as I can, staying faithful to the Bible, and saying I don't care about tradition, 
nor am I against it. I just want to know what the scripture says on this topic and this issue. And sort of picking one topic at a time. Like the Tuesday, I plan on doing a live stream where I'm going to talk about um, this is an interesting concept. There's something called presuppositional apologetics. There's one branch within this where they say it's wrong to present arguments for God's existence because you are putting God on trial as though they have to approve of God or disapprove of God or something like that. And this is actually gets a lot of attention from people. And so my question is going to be, is that biblical? Because I know verses that we talk about this issue, and so I'm excited to get into it. But, but that, that's, I mean, that's everything. Is it biblical? What does the scripture say? So what, to do this, what, I'm gonna, what I'll do and what anybody would have to do is you just gather all these, go and collect a whole bunch of passages that talk about angels. And then you just start writing down, well, what does this teach us? Well, what does this teach me? What does this teach me? And then you get all those truths you learn from the passages, and you put them all together, and you see if, it's, if you're consistent if it makes sense, if what you thought was true here is, holds in the New Testament as well, holds in this other passage. And then you can actually come up with like a, a list of truths about these spirit beings that God has made that are uh, the ones who are, serve God and the ones who rebelled. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so many questions on that issue. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, sorry, I'm of no help. <laughs> oh, Yvonne's going to ask a question first, then we'll bring it right to Will. Yes, please go ahead. Okay. Um, there's been so much talk about homosexuality, and this group of people are fighting, like fighting to get married, to have marriage legal. Mm -hmm. And I personally know a lot of born-again Christians who are baptized, and they're fighting, fighting to delay marriage. And they um, are having premarital sex. I know this because I, they're my friends, they're family members, mm -hmm. and they flaunt that at us as social media, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. We're at Big Bear, you know, we're at uh, Palm Springs Hotel, you know, and, you know, they're flaunted that they're, you know, having such ungodly behavior, yeah. right? And, um, we know them. They're our friends, like I said. They're our family members. And I don't know how this is acceptable behavior when clearly in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, um, premarital sex, which is fornicators, are, are the same category as homosexuals and adulterers. You know what I mean? And... Why is that we don't point that out and uh, our leaders point that out or us point that out and you know, encourage these brothers to actually uh, get married because the Bible calls us to be married, not to be in a relationship. Mm -hmm. I mean, many of them been in one year, two years in a relationship, they call it, you know. And they are in, like I said, the same category as homosexuals. They said... The Bible says that they're not going to be heirs of the kingdom of heaven. And so what would you say your question is about all that? Yeah, my question is, um, why, do, why do we accept that type of behavior, but we don't accept homosexual couples' behavior? Well, I definitely don't accept it. I mean, I mean when I go to services, like I always, um, the only pastor that I've heard is pastor from Calvary Chapel Downey. He's always pointing that out, you know, premarital sex. But I have never heard it on another um, church organization. But okay. um, I, have I've, we, I've heard it have quite we a bit conformed? myself. And it, yes, it depends. There's lots of different teachers out there. But, I mean, if, if the reason why homosexuality rises to the, to the surface is not because of the number of people doing it, but because the culture right now is making it a watershed issue. They're saying, Christians, compromise on this issue or we're going to demonize you. And so we have to go, okay, there's so much confusion. There's so many lies about this. We've got to talk about it. Um, but, but now in the absence of that, if the culture wasn't throwing this issue in our face, we would talk way more about people who are cohabitating or fornicating because that's a bigger issue in the sense, not in, not in the sense of measuring sins, um, but in the sense that it's more prevalent. A lot more people are doing this. It's actually practically affecting their lives a lot more. And so, absolutely. Um, are we conforming to that behavior? No, but, but I... So I disagree with your analysis of oh. of pastors in general. I don't think pastors in general are okay with people. No, not not, not so much the leaders, yeah. and the pastors, but 
us as members of the church because like I, like I have a lot of my friends that not only go to my church, but they serve in the church. Yeah. And we know them. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So um, so if, if they're serving and they're living in fornication, yes. then the job is to take it to the leadership and, and then the leadership will deal with it. I know the people at Downey, they, would, they wouldn't overlook it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's just that they don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like if I, if I found out someone serving in our ministry was living in fornication, I would deal with them. I would definitely not overlook it. Um, so yeah. Uh, thank you for. But obviously, I don't know everybody. Whatever yeah. teaching. <laughs> but yeah, fornication is a sin that far more people do than than the sin of homosexuality. It's just reality. I mean, of course, fornication is like all of the above. It's the big umbrella phrase. <laughs> so yeah. Okay. Thanks. So, sure. Um, well, you had a question. There would have to be more than just. Can you hold it right up to your There would have to be more than just. Satan, right? Because people get possessed and there's like multiple people. Mm-hmm. And wasn't there like a legion? Of yeah. So there'd be a bunch mm-hmm. of them, right? So they, he was demon possessed. So the question he has is, are demons and fallen angels the same thing? And that's where I go, I mean, my default position would be, yeah, why not? Like, that makes sense. One explains the other in a sense, right? A fallen angel is, okay, that makes sense. You, you said it was a But I feel thing. like I want to study it more before I speak on it. Well, you said it was like a future thing, but wouldn't it have had to have been in the past if people, like if multiple people are possessed at the same time, there'd be more yeah. than one. So, um, angels come to earth, good good angels, right? They come to earth. Are they kicked out of heaven when they come to earth? No, they just, they come and go, it seems, that that's natural, that they can come and go. Um, so, you could be a fallen, morally fallen angel, rebelled against God, and maybe, maybe you even have no real place in heaven, or maybe there's some sense, some kind of place in the sense that God gives sinners a place temporarily on earth. Maybe they have a temporary place until the new heaven and new earth are made. You ever think about that? God makes heaven again as well, not just earth. He makes it all again. Um, but the, the, the thing I say is, I think is future, is the casting out permanently of Satan and his angels out of heaven. We, we, we read about that in Revelation. So I think the, the fall of Satan already happened, but the casting out of Satan seems to be a future event. That's what, how I would read that. So like in Isaiah uh, 14 and Ezekiel 28, we read about like the fall of Satan and his future judgment. And then in Revelation, we read about the fight with Michael and he's, he's, him and his angels are cast out and he's angry and he goes after the people of God on the earth. But for, for now, it seems like he can come and go to some extent between the two. Yeah, then you have the ones in tar- Tartarus that are kept in chains. This is, it's a, this is a very expansive and big area of Bible study. Um. <laughs> it's very interesting. It's a special group though, that it seems during the flood we're up to no good. Maybe that's the whole Nephilim thing. And what happened to the Legion when the pigs Yeah, I don't know. And why do they even go into the pigs then? Scared. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Or study it on your own. You can always do that. <laughs> I just have so many things on the plate that I have to kind of push it far out. Yeah. But what you're saying about how maybe at this time Satan's allowed to come and go, then that would explain Job. That's what seems to be happening in Job. Yeah. It says the sons of God were presenting themselves to God, and then Satan came among them. Doesn't seem that he's considered to be one of them in that sense, but he came at the same time, and he's yeah. And the whole conversation happens with Job. Yeah. Now some people think Job is poetry, and that Job wasn't even a real physical human being. It's all poetry. I disagree. I think I read it. It seems like it's really happened. Um, and it's obviously poetic. There's poetic elements in it. For sure, it is. It's. Yeah. It, it reads like it really happened. And so if it really happened, and it's not just a parable, then I take that to mean Satan did have some access into God's presence, though not for worship and fellowship or anything like that, but in order to be what? The accuser. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, Satan accuses us day and night. Doesn't it say that? Yes. Where does he accuse us? Doesn't it say before God? No. So I think he has access. Yeah, anyway, so that's, that's my view. And the thing is that some people haven't really thought about this much, and so I start unpacking a little bit of the things I've seen, and they're like, that's just, 
but you start to realize there's a lot of information that maybe we haven't really studied carefully. You know, there's a lot for us to learn. Lots of stuff to learn in the Bible. So yes, please. This um, passage. What I want to ask about is the passage in um, in Luke, and I think it's also recorded in Matthew, maybe Mark, where Jesus is tempted by Satan. Uh, oh, Je yeah, if you could hold it right Jesus, up there. Jesus is tempted by Satan. Mm -hmm. And I know we're to take the Bible literally, but to go to the point of what I'd like to know more about is when, and God allowed Jesus to be tempted by Satan for his purpose, to show us how we can, too, follow Jesus' example. But what I don't understand is how the devil could take Jesus up on a mountain and show him the kingdom of the world and say these will be yours if you bow down and worship me. Mm -hmm. So I just can't concept, get that concept in my mind about how Satan would have that power over Jesus. I know he's the prince of the power of the air and, and all these descriptions of Jesus, but how could he be given that power to take Jesus up on a mountaintop and mm -hmm. show him when Jesus was both God and man, that just, that just, I don't know why I can't conceive of that. Well, I think the, I think the short answer is that Jesus went willingly. Wherever Satan wanted to take him, he went willingly because he was led by the spirit. It says to be tempted by Satan. We read then in Hebrews, how he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. So in a sense, Jesus went to overcome the temptations of Satan and to overcome them. He submitted to, to being tempted. So he allowed, he allowed Satan to take him there, just as he allowed them to put him on the cross. I mean, you obviously can't do that without his permission. Yes. No man takes my life, I freely lay it down. Excellent. So in the same sense as we see him submitting at the cross to wicked men, we see him yielding to the temptations, not, I should say, yielding to be exposed to the, temptation, to the temptations of Satan, not yielding to them because he resisted temptation, of course. Um, and then he shows them all the kingdom of the world in a moment of time. That seems to have been a vision of some kind. Um, because he showed them in a moment, click, all these kingdoms of the world. and um, Yeah. I think that's an excellent analogy because when you think of it, Jesus could have, what he could have done to those people who were out to crucify him. Oh, yeah. Did all those things to him. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. Instead of, instead of doing those things to him, he did things for them to save them. Yeah. His mercy. Yeah, I have a question, but just to continue on what um, was just said. There is something that I've heard about um, because Satan was given the power over the kingdom of the earth or something mm -hmm. that he really had the power or he thought he had that power, not knowing that the power of, of, of God was more than what he has what Satan has, so he thought he could show this to Jesus and said, "Look at look at me," knowing not mm -hmm. knowing that he was nothing, but you know Jesus was everything. Yeah. And I can't remember the the thought the thought fully, but it just brought back that. Yeah. But I've heard that somewhere. I don't know if yeah. it's scriptural or if it's you know. Yeah. As you're sharing this, I'm thinking like if we need to do a study called like what does Satan know? <laughs> <laughs> because so Satan uh, he has authority oh. over the earth yeah and that's why he's the, the the god of this age and the ruler of of the um how's it phrased in ephesians um the ruler of the darkness of this age i think it says or something like that he's the god of this he's the god of this age this world this ungodly system so that uh when in a sense, and I'm not going to pretend to unpack how all this works, but in a sense, when Adam and Eve yielded to the temptations of Satan, they also handed over dominion, in a sense, to him, um, in some sense. Because now he is the one who's in control. So when uh, we read in Ephesians 3 about how we previously were lost, we were, we were basically Satan's puppets, so to speak. And um, Jesus even talks about the Jews, the unsaved ones that he was speaking with, and he says to them that they were, their father is the devil, instead of their father being Abraham or God. He says your father is the devil. So 
there's definitely a, a sense in which I, I like to think of it as a hierarchy. Okay, in my head, like I picture heaven. There's like a in my it's just an image in my head, right? There's like a, a draw a circle. This represents heaven, and there's a throne, and God's on the throne. And then draw a picture that's the earth, and there's a throne, and Satan's on the throne. And then you know draw a picture of the individual different governments around the world and there's thrones and you have the kings and presidents and stuff on these various different thrones and so we have human authorities ranking up like in a, in a home it's like the dog is under the authority of even the kids everybody right and the, the kids are under the authority of the parents the parents are under the authority of perhaps government or their bosses and things like that the governments and bosses are under ultimately under the control of Satan and Satan ultimately is underneath God's sovereign authority but he's not getting orders from God Follow me this way, do this, here's my will. He's rebelling against God. This represents a rebellion. There's a civil war happening, so to speak. And Satan represents the rebellion against God. But God's sovereignty is that he's working even through that rebellion to his purposes and his ends because his kung fu is that good. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> and so, yeah, uh, yeah, Satan is definitely controlling things on this earth in his ability, within his ability to control. But God in a greater sense, is using all things to bring about his perfect will in the end. Um, and so that seems to be consistent with scripture. I think that's pretty pretty clear as you read about that. Yeah. And then we're led out of that. Now, we're, we're not, I'm not part of Satan's kingdom. Right? Because I'm not of this world. Yeah. Thank you. I have another question, which I did ask you some uh, some time ago, and you said we were going to go into that. But uh, I just want you to tell me a little about um, Judges eleven thirty four, the daughter. Is that Jephthah's daughter? Yeah. Okay, Was so she there's killed? A there's or? a debate on this passage. So here's the short version for anybody who, because you know the passage, but I'll catch everybody up. So Jephthah, he's, he's heading out to war. He's one of the judges of Israel, right? He's heading out to war, and he makes a vow to God. He's like, God, if you'll give me the victory in this war, when I come back home, whatever comes out of that house to greet me, I will sacrifice it to you. Right? And then he leaves. And now, is that commanded anywhere for him to make this vow? This vow completely came from him, right? He made a vow it just came from Jephthah. It's not necessary. Um, and then he comes back to war, and who comes out to greet him? His only daughter. Right? I believe it was his only daughter, if I recall. His only child. Thank you. So here in verse 34, Then Jephthah came, home, came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She's like, could you, like, hey, I'm just saying, like, if Allison ever wants to greet me with dances and tambourines, like, I'm cool with that. Like, that's good. But, like, Talk about a great homecoming, right? He's had victory. She's like, this is how expressive they are in that culture. And she's like dancing and she's singing. and she, I don't know, Or maybe she was singing. I don't know if she was like, maybe she couldn't sing. Just shaking dance, tambourines. So she's his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. <clears throat> and as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes. Because it's an expression of sorrow. Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. <laughs> if jerk, you blame her. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but this is what guys do. Well, people do. I'm this quick to blame someone else. Um, you've brought me very low and you've become the cause of great trouble to me for I've opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. So, so the idea is so far, as you read, she's going to be sacrificed, which God forbids, human sacrifice. Like, he clearly forbids this in the text of Scripture. So what is, what's supposed to be done? And I'm, I'm, this, is, this is a hard passage, and it's a passage that people debate over. Um, but let's just look through it. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done to me. Leave me alone for two months, that I may go up and down <clears throat> on the mountains and weep for my virginity, and I and my companions. She never got to have children. Only daughter. Jephthah's whole line is dead now. Right? No, Even a grandson, or right? something to carry on the family in a sense, right? Um, no. So there's, there's, there's no carrying on. She was, let me weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So, so he said, go, and then he sent her <clears throat> and for, away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. At the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. What did he do? 
Well, that's the debate, right? She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. So what did he do to her? That's the debate. Did he physically kill her as a sacrifice to God, or did she remain a virgin as a way of fulfilling that vow? I'm not sure. Um, but let me unpack the options, right? The reason why they say maybe she remained a virgin is because Jephthah, um, uh, she says to her dad, let me go and mourn my virginity. Not my life, my virginity. Like, okay, so maybe the, maybe, maybe the, this move, because it was, if it was an animal, you just kill it. But if it's her, there's got to be something else that has to be done. God has forbidden human sacrifice. We've got to find some other way of fulfilling the vow. Well, you will live as though I fulfilled the vow. You'll just be a virgin. Okay, maybe that's how they fulfilled the vow. We also know that like God, now here's, here's the legal Old Testament law support for this. Um, God says, the firstborn that comes out of every womb, you shall sacrifice to me. And he says, but your firstborn children, you'll redeem them with money. You'll bring an offering instead that will replace them because I will not let you sacrifice people to me. Human sacrifice forbidden by God. So what do you do when there's a human that's to be sacrificed? You offer some sort of redemption instead because you don't sacrifice humans. But did Jephthah pay attention to the law? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us what he did. So, um, so the text stands as either A, she remained a virgin. This was how they would sort of redeem, you know, offer something else instead. And that was what they did. Or he actually sacrificed her, which is what the phrase fulfilled his vow, did what he said he would do, the implication then would be he actually sacrificed her, which to me stands as a testimony of how dangerous it is to be ignorant of the scriptures because they were ignorant of God forbidding, I don't care what you vow, I told you don't do that, right? This to me would be, you don't fulfill this vow because you vowed to do something against my will. You made a promise to do something I don't want you to do. God, if you, if you grant me you know, this job interview, then I'll divorce my wife. And I get the job interview, and now, oh, now I have to fulfill my vow. No, this is clearly, you know, like, what an ignorance of the scriptures. Like, you don't do this. Like, you were wrong to vow it, my friend. And so if he did do it, which I don't know, then, then it stands as a testimony, as a lot of the book of Judges does, of the incredible ignorance of many of the Israelites to what the word of God actually told them. Because if you read through Judges, it's a lot of tragedies. Like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be a priest, and you're over here offering idols to people. Like, what is going on? This amazing ignorance of God's revealed scriptures, um, and it's a warning to us. Otherwise, it was like her virginity instead of her life. Um, I will note, the Bible does not support this. It simply records it just like it did any other of the mistakes and errors of these men. Um, so, how does this relate to how we view these guys? We look at it, I take them all as a personal warning against me. You may serve the Lord well in your life, and have some gaping mistake that you carry forward and that is remembered, so to speak. And so I, I, I don't know, I take every time I see someone who really epically fails, I take it as a personal warning about my own walk with God and my own integrity and my own character. Because um, you may have victory against the enemies of Israel, but you've got to deal with your own issues as well, so to speak. So I hope that that helps. I'm, that, that's where the two options are, and that's how I would view it, depending on which one is true. I think Jephthah should have said, well, what do we do when we have to redeem a human? I'm going to offer that to the Lord instead. Because God has told us, instead of sacrificing a person, you'll do this. That seems like a legal Old Testament support for something else to redeem that, to redeem her back instead of that sacrifice. Seems as though he didn't do that, though. It was either her virginity or her life. Yeah. Yeah. The Bible seems to be ashamed of it in a sense, actually because it doesn't even want to talk about it that much. Just, this is what happened. This is why they do the mourning thing. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, <clears throat> stick around if anybody has a question they want to ask outside of it, because we'll go ahead and pray. But um, but it, is this beneficial to you guys? Do it, I've never done a Q&A, like just straight Q&A on a Sunday night. But yes. in the future... Let's say that I'm, I'm going, boy, I, my schedule's super crazy busy right now, and it'd be really helpful for me if I could just show up and do a Q&A. Is that something you guys would like? I don't want to do it every week. Okay. Good. All right. So. Huh? I don't, I don't mind random. I'm, we're all random, right? Um, 
Okay, so, but next week, we're going to pick up with our Jesus in the Old Testament. We're going to continue plotting through that. So let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we can see from the, this Q&A that many of us have questions, and we trust you, but we have things we just tr- are trying to understand and comprehend better. And so we pray, Lord, give us wisdom. Give us wisdom. I mean, not only answers to our questions, but wisdom so we know how to handle tough questions and not to overreact or not to, to entertain um, wrong thinking because we just don't know the answer to something. We just pray that we be a people who ask questions in a, in a wise way. Father, we trust you. We love you. We thank you for your holy word. We pray that you would help us understand it better and more because there's people around us who really kind of need us to know the Bible so we can talk to them about it. Father, we, um, we just pray you go with us. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Remind us of your grace and your kindness, of your sovereignty and your, and your, your, your goodness, Lord. And help us to have questions so that we might dig for those wonderful answers. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>